So in chapter 6, in verse 12, actually verses 11 and 12, the author wrote this. He says, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence. In other words, continuing to be diligent to the full assurance of hope until the end that you do not become sluggish, but, he says, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And if you remember from last week, we talked about how the author here is wanting to encourage these Hebrew Christians to keep moving towards maturity. We talked about really clearly that the Scripture gives sober warnings uh, to those who would refuse to mature, who don't want to grow up spiritually. Because God has been clear that He saved us that we might grow. He plants the seed in our heart, the seed of Christ in our heart. He produces the growth, the increase, that we might become like Jesus. And so He calls us to continue to grow. And and so He calls that growth to, to come through, in part, through imitating those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So in other words, he's really clear, we talked about last week, that part of the way we grow is we grow through faith, and we grow through faith by being in good relationship with people that are more mature than us, that have pushed on before us. But also what the author's going to do in the last part of chapter 6 is kind of lay out Abraham as a good example. Abraham, a great example to us of someone who persevered in faith. And it's important that we see there's a connection here because it's important to understand, of course, the context anytime you're looking at the Scriptures, but it's also important because it has to do with us understanding what God's wanting to do. What the Spirit of God's wanting to say through Hebrews is to us that, that, that Jesus is for us a guarantee that we're going to reach that point of maturity. And so this is what we want to talk about. And it's important, isn't it? I mean, I think we live... Right now, what's going on right now with us in this country, having some sort of a guarantee is a good thing. Because regardless of how you voted uh, to leave or to remain, the the fact is all of us are wondering what's going to happen in the future. All of us are wanting to to, to know what's going to happen, what's going to What's going to happen to our economy? What's going to happen to our relationship with the rest of the world? What's going to happen to our kids in the future? All of us wonder about these things, and rightly so. And we, we're wanting hope. Now, some of us think we've lost hope because we, we're not part of the European Union and we think that's where our hope is found. Others think, no, no, we have hope now because we as Great Britain, we can, we can trust the, the fortitude that we have as a people, so our hope is in that. And guess what? Both those hopes are wrong. Because the European Union cannot be our hope. Great Britain as a nation cannot be our hope. Ourselves can't be a hope. No, Jesus has to be our hope. If we're going to be following Him, we have to see Him as our hope. He is our expectation of a better future. So now what the author of Hebrews wants to to, to spell out for these guys is why He's that better guarantee, why we can trust Him. So that's what we want to really look at this morning. So if we pick it up in verse 13, it says, But when God made a promise to Abraham... Because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. In other words, he couldn't swear by the temple, he couldn't swear by the earth, he couldn't swear by the universe because he's greater than all those things. And the way oaths work is you swear on something that has more authority or credibility than you are to prove that you're actually going to follow through with something. 
And we're going to talk about this swearing of oaths in a minute. But notice it says, when he did this, here's what he said, surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. Now he's quoting from Genesis chapter 22. And the only way you're going to understand what the author of Hebrews is saying is to know the context of Genesis chapter 22. So I'm not going to have you turn there because we don't have enough time. You can if you want to, but it's going to be on the screen. Genesis 22. So, Genesis 22, here's what happens. At this point, Abraham has received Isaac, his son. God had promised Abraham way back when, when he and his wife Sarah were unable to have children, that God would make from him a great nation. From his descendants would be a great nation, which is a huge promise to somebody who's barren. And it took them 25 years before they actually got that son of promise, before they had Isaac. Now, before that, they took matters in their own hands, and Abraham slept with his his wife's helpmate, Hagar, on purpose by her uh, permission, and they had uh, uh, Ishmael. But God says, no, I want to do a promise. I'm going to do something supernatural here that I'm going to make from your body that was presumed dead. I'm going to bring forth this new life, this promised son. So the promised son has come, and here's what it says, verse 1 of Genesis 22. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And then God said, take now your son, notice your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. Now if you know the story, you know how it ends. Don't give it away, okay? But if you don't know the story, you feel the drama. And if you do know the story, you should be reminded of the drama. This is God saying, I want you to go slay your son. That's huge. The same God who said, you shall, you shall not kill, is saying, go slay your son. And what's interesting about this as well is that this, this is God testing Abraham. He's wanting to reveal something in Abraham's heart to Abraham. God knows our hearts, man. When he puts us through a test, it's not for his benefit, it's for our benefit. And so he's putting Abraham through this thing, and it's interesting that he says, take now your son, your only son. He doesn't even acknowledge Ishmael as one of the sons of Abraham. He says, take now your son, your only son, Isaac. Notice it says, whom you love. Significant. The first time the word love is used in the Scripture is this verse. And it's not husband and wife, it's father and son. Why? Because the God we serve is father, son, and spirit, and he's love. And so he says, I want you to go offer him. And what does it say? Check this out. Next slide. And so Abraham rose early in the morning and he saddled his donkey and he took two of his young men that would be his servants with him and Isaac his son and he split the wood for the burnt offering and he arose and he went to a place of which God had told him. Then notice on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place after, uh, afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and, notice, worship. And he will come back to you. It's the first time the English word worship is used in the Scripture. It's got nothing to do with music. And it says, notice, So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac. Isaac carried the wood. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, notice, God will provide for himself the lamb 
for a burnt offering that could be translated in Hebrew, God will provide Himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Now, again, do you notice that the parallels in the story? The third day, Jesus is in the, bur- in the ground buried for three days, right? Notice also that when, he, when, when Abraham says, you know, or when Isaac calls out to his son or to his father, Abraham, Abraham says, here I am, my son, in the same way. In other words, he's relating to him in the same way that the father related to Abraham. Notice also when Isaac's wondering, uh, getting, probably getting a bit nervous at this point, uh, we got wood, we got fire, uh, who's going to be slain here? You know? That he says, you know, God's going to provide the sacrifice. It's, the sacrifice is God's provision, which is completely unusual because when you give a sacrifice to God in worship, what do you give? You give something that's your own. God doesn't provide it. You give it. Moving on, next slide. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. Notice, and he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And so he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hands on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And so God went and he took the ram and offered it up to the, as a, for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, literally Jehovah Jireh. And as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, and this is the quote that we have in Hebrews, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and as of the sand which is in the seashore and your descendants shall possess the... um, the gate of their enemies, in, and in your seed, in all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, that's the context. When Hebrews, when the author of Hebrews writes this, when he quotes the, the, the last couple verses there in Genesis 22, that's the context that he's thinking of. And listen, because he's writing to Hebrews, it's the context they were thinking of. They would have thought that automatically. And here's what's important. Basically, he's he's wanted to be clear. When did this promise get made? When did God oath himself? At what point did God say, let me just swear even by myself. Let me reiterate and reinforce the promise I've already made. I've promised, now I'm going to make an oath on top of that promise. When did he do that? After the son was offered and then received again back to the father. Do you see the picture? God makes the promise. He says, here's the guarantee. Here's, here's how you know, okay? Here's the, the confirmation of my promise to you. My, my promise to you, Abraham, is confirmed after the only son is put on the altar of sacrifice and received back again to his father. Then the oath is confirmed. You still look at me kind of blankly. You guys, okay. This is what happened with Jesus, okay? 
Jesus, God's only begotten Son, here's what happens, right? God's only begotten Son is offered on the cross. And the Bible teaches that when He's dying on that cross, it's not just because bad guys wanted to put Him there. That was true. But He's dying on that cross willingly and He's paying a price for our sins. And as He predicts, after He's Buried after he's dead on the cross, he's buried in a tomb. And what happens three days later? He rises from the dead. And after he rises from the dead, what happens? He walks this earth for 40 days. He, he preaches to those that were his disciples. 500 people at once saw him do this. And then in front of many witnesses, he ascends back into heaven where he's now seated at the right hand of God. That's the testimony of the New Testament, the testimony of Scripture. So here's what I'm trying to say to you. This is really important for us to see. The author of Hebrews is trying to say, listen, God swore to himself. Hey, he's talking to these Hebrew people. Look, you guys are Hebrews. Abraham's your hero. He's a great example of faith. Don't you get it? When did God swear? When did God make an oath? He did so after the chosen son, the supernatural given son, was sacrificed and then given back. You could say resurrected. That's when he made the oath. What's God's oath to us as believers? The resurrection and the ascension of Christ. That's his oath to us. The fact that Jesus is alive and the fact that Jesus isn't just alive and then somehow died again sometime, which some weird cults say, but that he actually was seen ascending to heaven and has promised to come back. That reality of Jesus seated in heaven now. And it's treated, listen, In the New Testament, it's treated as much of a reality as the fact that Jesus walked in Galilee. Same historical reality. That reality, listen, listen, means that God has confirmed His oath to us. We don't just believe a book that makes some grand promises. We believe a person Which brings us to the next part. It says in verse 15, and so after he, that's that's speaking of Abraham, after he patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Interesting. Abraham, literally you could say, suffered long. That phrase, patiently endured, it's translated in another place, was long-suffering. Like, let me give you a couple of verses where that's translated long-suffering. You, you know these verses. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some have count, counted slackness, but is long-suffering. God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That phrase, long-suffering, same phrase, it's translated as this, uh, same word is translated as this phrase, uh, patiently endured. Paul says plainly in 1 Corinthians that love suffers long. Same again, that that phrase is the same phrase it's translated here, patiently endured. Love patiently endures. Why is this important? Abraham knew that the same God who came through in his promise, though it took 25 years for him to see the physical uh, confirmation of the promise, the God who came through on that promise would be able to follow through on that promise. 
that he would keep that promise. All right, God, you said, Adam, you're going to make a great nation. You gave me this supernaturally. You gave me this son. You allowed my wife, Sarah, and I to be pregnant, and we had this child, even though we were crazy old when we had this kid. You, you came through. You did this. So i got to believe from this kid is going to come a great nation, because that's what you told me. So even if you want me to slay this kid, you're able to resurrect this kid to guarantee that I have the promise that you've given to me. You're able to do that. Now listen, guys. Why did Abraham get that place? How how did Abraham get to the place of growing? Because he walked with God for 25 years. And in walking with God for 25 years, and if if you weren't with us when we went through the book of Genesis, you can go back and listen to the messages. We talked about all this stuff. You go back and you see how Abraham walked. You know what you learn about Abraham, the father of all who have faith? Abraham, who's held up in Scripture as this great example of one who has faith. You know what you learn about him? He messed up all the time. He blew it constantly. He'd lie about his wife, risk her life and her virtue just to protect himself. He, he, he did all kinds of stupid things. But you know what's amazing? He learned how faithful God was to him. He learned in a very real sense that God indeed was committed to love him. And love suffers long. Why did Abraham suffer long? Because God suffered long with Abraham. That's the point. What he's trying to say, the author of Hebrews is trying to get through our heads and through the audience head that he was writing to originally is that God's confirmed, we have the confirmation of God's promise in Jesus himself Not just the promises that we have in the book, but Jesus himself is God's promise to us. And because he's promised us, guess what? We can endure long. You know why? Because we can know he endures long with us. My wife, Sarah, is one of the most patient people. My kids might disagree, but she is one of the most patient people I've ever met. She's incredibly forgiving, patient, kind. She really, really is. But I have to say, she has a limit. I know, because I push that limit all the time. <laughs> she has a limit when she just says, that's enough. <laughs> you know what I found out, what I found about God through experience? That God, who loves me enough to chasten me, that'll be Hebrews chapter 12, that he suffers long with me. He doesn't give up. He endures with me in my failings, in my doubts, in my wrestlings. He doesn't give up. You know, know, we see this so perfectly in Jesus. Because think about the the, the men that followed Jesus, these 12 men that they picked. And of those 12, most of them are obscure. We don't know much about them at all. But there were three, Peter, James, and John, that really are highlighted in Scripture. And specifically, Peter, because he always put his foot in his mouth, which I can completely relate to, Peter is seen over and over again in Scripture. And it was Peter who said, I love you, Jesus. I'll never, I'll never deny you. I'll, I'll die with you if I have to. And Jesus had to say to him, Peter, actually, you're going to deny me three times in the same night. And it'll be the night when I would really need your support the most. And what happens? After he does that and he goes away weeping bitterly, Jesus rises from the dead shows himself to Peter. Even after that, Peter's probably wondering, yeah, okay, he was right, but I blew it. Goes, Peter goes back fishing. Jesus shows up 
in John chapter 21, and what does he do? He restores Peter. He asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Then do what I called you to do originally. You know what that is? That's love suffering long. Why, did, why was Abraham able to suffer long? Because he had the confirmation of God's promise. God stopped him when he was willing to do the very thing that he thought, okay, God, I believe you. God says, you know what? I know you believe me, and now you know that you believe me, and I want to confirm it by an oath. You know what God says to us? God says, look, I know you believe in me, but because you've testified, because you've professed publicly that you belong to me, here's my oath to you. I've resurrected. I've ascended into heaven. I'm coming back for you. I'm going to suffer long as you are growing through this process. God confirms to us. Now, he swore by himself, and this brings us to the second bit, not just the confirmation of God's promise, but the assurance of God's character. Look at verse 16. The author writes, For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Now, oaths, are legally binding. We still do that today, don't you? That's what a contract is. A contract is basically a written oath. And what you're doing is you're, when you sign your name at the bottom of a contract or you click the, the box that says, I agree to the terms and condition, which nobody ever reads, you're basically saying, I am now putting myself under common law that says we have a contract between me, one party, and this, this person, the other party. And it's legally binding. Which is why if you don't read those things that you click on, they come back and say, oh, actually, sorry, it's only this price for the first three months, and after that it goes up by, you know, 1,000%. Then you go, ah, you clicked the tab. You made the oath. It's now binding. End of, dis- end of disagreement. You can't, you can't dispute it anymore. You can't say, I didn't know. Well, you shouldn't have clicked the thing. Fact. So, so here's the reality. We see oaths as binding right? They're legally binding. Well, this is what he says, verse 17, thus God, notice, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise. In other words, God made an oath to Abraham because, listen, he was motivated by the heirs of the promise, the people who would inherit the promise that he was made to Abraham. Do you get this? In other words, God's made the oath not just for Abraham's sake, but for those who would inherit all the things that were promised to Abraham, those who would be of the world blessed. Who are those? Well, look at verse 18. He says, notice, after he says it's impossible for God to lie, he says, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Who are the heirs of promise? We are. Any of us who, in following Jesus, are pursuing Him as our refuge. It's interesting, too, what uses that word refuge. It's a word that's used in the Greek version of the Old Testament to speak of these things called cities of refuge. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. That The Old Testament law, when God set a law for His people, one of the laws was there was if there was an accidental death. So you're building a house with your mate, and you drop a brick, and that brick happens to bounce funny and hit your mate in the head, and your mate's dead. In that culture, what would have happened is your mate's brothers would have came to kill you. That's what would have happened in that time of human history. 
So God says, okay, because we know people want vengeance when somebody loved has been killed, here's the thing, we're going to have these cities of refuge, cities of refuge placed all over Israel. And if you do that, you run that city of refuge, you don't, go, you don't do anything else, you run that city of refuge, and you stay there, and no one can touch you in that city. You're safe until there can be a trial that happens and they can assess, was it accident, was it not accident? There was that city of refuge. That's the word here used. So the picture that the author is writing is this, and again, the Hebrews who read this would have understood this. The picture he's setting is this. Okay, who are the heirs of promise? Those who treat Jesus as the city of refuge. Who know that they have blood on their hands and are running to say, God, please, unless you plead my case, I'm dead. Because this is important for us to understand, okay? This assurance of God's character, this oath that God made to Abraham wasn't just for Abraham, it was for us. We, if we put our faith in Jesus, are heirs to the promise. This is what the Scripture says. Galatians 3.29 says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If you belong to Jesus... If, if, if he said to you, follow me, and you said, okay, I'll follow you, and you followed him, guess what? You're an heir. You get to inherit all these blessings that God initially made to Abraham. They're yours in Christ. Pretty good deal. This is what we get. So how do we have the assurance we're going to get it? Well, it's the, it's the assurance of God's character. Look again at verse 17. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, notice the immutability of His counsel. Immutability means that it doesn't change. It cannot change. If something's immutable, it cannot change. And so God's saying He's wanting to show the immutability of His counsel, that when He declares something to be, it is, and it cannot be changed. So like when God created the universe, He said, let there be light, and it went light, and then, oh, it turned off again. No, no, I said light. Clap on, you know, light. It's not like that worked that way. When God says light, guess what? Light exists and it never unexists unless God says so. Whatever God says, it cannot change, okay? And notice he says, he confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things, that is, by the promise he initially made, initially made I can't talk, initially made, and by uh, the confirmation of the oath, by these two immutable or unchangeable things, in which, notice, it is impossible for God to lie. Now, have you ever had somebody say to you, hey, God can't do anything, right? Or God can do anything, right? And you say, yeah. And they say, well, then can God make a rock he can't pick up? They think they're very clever when they ask those questions. There's lots of things that God can't do. God can do nothing that would violate his character. So the answer to the question, can God make a rock he can't pick up? No, because no created thing can be greater than the creator. Can't be. That's impossible. God can't lie. Anything he speaks is truth. That's what it says. It's impossible for God to lie. In fact, look, look what it says in Scripture. Paul writes this in Titus chapter 1. We're going to look at Titus at church camp. You guys should all go home. Titus chapter 1 writes about in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began. That's this. Listen, that means eternal life. This idea that we would be with God forever was God's plan before He even created the universe. 
And He promised it's going to come to pass. He promised He'd make a way for anyone willing to have eternal life with Him forever. He promised, and He can't lie. This is why the Scripture says this. In 1 John 5.10, it says, All who believe in the Son of God know in their hearts that this testimony is true. And those who don't believe this is act, are, are actually calling God a liar because they don't believe what God has testified about His Son. Have you ever called someone a liar? Maybe you called someone a liar in jest. You know, one of your friends was telling a, a porcupine, they're telling a you know. A, an exaggerated story, like, you're such a liar. You did not do that. No, you did not score that goal from 30 meters out. Come on. Because they've exaggerated a bit. Or maybe somebody has betrayed you and you caught them in a lie. Maybe your spouse or your child or your parents, somebody close to you who you trusted betrayed you. And in anger, you say, You're a liar. But usually we reserve that blame, that accusation for something quite serious. And what God is saying here is he's saying, listen, when we refuse to believe the testimony of God himself, we're saying, sorry, you're lying. You're a liar. Now, I don't know about you, but I have lied in my lifetime. Anybody here never lied? You would raise your hand and be a liar. That's right. <laughs> We've all lied. But we wouldn't bet all of us would be offended if we walked up to any of us or any of you and said, you're a liar. Because you'd say, wait a second. Yeah, I've lied before, but that, you can't say that that characterizes my whole life. Come on. Now, to be honest, it probably does, and you just don't realize it. But here's the thing. We see the injustice of accusing someone who seems to be trustworthy of being a liar. We choose to trust people. We take people at their word all the time. Someone writes us a check for something, we are believing that that signature is their signature, that check is their check, and what they say is going to come from their account, is going to come from their account and come into ours. We give faith to people all the time. We trust people all the time. Why would we not trust the God who became a man and pierced history and rose from the dead and said, this is it. Here is eternal life that you would know me. Why would we say, nah, you're a liar. Now at this point, some of you guys, maybe your head's spinning, your, your, your wheels are turning, you're going, no, no, no I, I wouldn't say God's a liar. God's probably, he wouldn't lie, but you can't really trust the people who tell God's story. I mean, come on. Maybe those guys who followed Jesus, they just told the story and they lied because they wanted to be famous. Do you know what happened to the guys who followed Jesus? First of all, they didn't believe he was going to die. Then when he did, they didn't believe he was going to resurrect. Then when he resurrected, they weren't sure he was actually really him. Then when they all saw him at the same time and they were convinced he was him, they still didn't know what to do. So Jesus said, stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then... Their whole message was based on the fact that Jesus was alive and they saw him ascend to heaven. And you know what happened to them? By saying this is true, they were beaten, they were poor, they saw their families killed, and all but one of them died a martyr's death. People die for what they believe is true, but people do not die for what they know is a lie. 
And yet God has given us this great testimony that he made sure it was protected in this book that by all accounts in history should never have survived. And we say, nah, God, you're a liar. I don't believe you. How sad. How sad. I love the fact, though, that this is written not as a confrontation, but as a consolation. That when, listen, when the author of Hebrews writes this, he says, he, God, it's impossible for God to lie. And he wrote this that we might have a strong consolation or a comfort. Yes, I am safe in the city of refuge. Yes, I am safe in Jesus. God's oath confirms it. God's character confirms it. He's a trustworthy God. His character confirms it. Now listen. I'll be honest. I look at this world and I go, there's not a whole lot that happens in this world where I go, man, I really see the goodness of God here, especially among the way people treat each other. I look at how people are, I look at all the injustice and I go, God, really? You're good? Are you also powerful? Really? Because I look at this and I go, when is this going to get sorted out? When are people, innocent people going to stop being persecuted? When are guilty people going to start getting busted? When are you going to sort this stuff out, God? But then I look at Jesus. And I think, okay, Jesus is God incarnated, God clothed in human flesh. And I look at his character and I think, who else is as trustworthy as him? Who else? Who else showed that kind of character? where people would make themselves completely vulnerable for him even before he died and rose again? Who else would show that kind of character? Who else proved his word by doing everything he said he would do? And if he's done everything he said he, can, he would do, listen, that means whatever else he's promised that hasn't happened yet, it's going to happen. We can believe it. We can trust Him. We have the confirmation of His character, God's character seen in Christ. We are like those that John writes about in 1 John. We believe the Son of God. We trust that Jesus is God's only begotten Son, and we know in our heart that this testimony is true about Him. That's what faith is. That's what saving faith is. If, if you've been visiting for a while and you've been wondering, okay, what do they call us to believe? What does that really even mean to believe? It means this. It means you trust that Jesus is who he said he is and will do what he said he will do. And you trust that because he rose from the dead like he said he would and he ascended to heaven like he said he did. He would. You believe it. I believe Jesus. Not just in Jesus, that he's an historical figure, but I trust Jesus. Him. That's, that's saving faith. Why do you trust Him? Because He's worthy of trust. He's trustworthy. That's why we trust Him. He's good. Now, we get in these last couple of verses, 
And what happens here is the author does something that I guess you're not really supposed to do. If, you, if there are any literature students here, you can tell me. But I've heard, I've heard that it's really bad to mix metaphors in your writing. Well, the author of Hebrew mixes two big metaphors, okay? He says, this hope, this hope that we have in Jesus that all that God's promised us is going to come to pass. He says, this hope, listen, we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Then he talks about, later on in verse 20, where the forerunner has uh, entered for us. Now, this idea of anchor and forerunner, those two words are connected to um, a maritime metaphor. In other words, a metaphor about people who sail. In this culture, what you would have had was, actually like, as it is in our culture, you, you have some, in some coastal areas natural harbors where maybe there's some hills that are built up on the land and there's a bay that's kind of carved out by the sea and because the hills are built up, it's protected against strong winds and because there, there's the, the water's been carved out by the sea, there's a depth there. And so that's a harbor. Often it's a safe harbor and ports are built usually in those safe harbors, okay? Sometimes you have to go up a stream to find a safe harbor, but still it's getting away from the actual sea where all the storms happen and getting to a place where you can be safe. Now when these huge ships, these huge vessels would come in in biblical times to bring uh, to bring their wares to the different ports, what they would do is they would come forth and they wouldn't just set anchor because most of the time they couldn't just go sail right into the harbor. If the seas were rough at all, usually on either end in the entrance to the harbor, there were many rocks and there was, the depth would change drastically. And so what would have to happen is they'd have to stop outside the harbor. But the thing was this, okay? If they stopped there and they let their anchor down there, what could happen is the waves themselves could smash up the boat. And so what they would do is they would lower down a boat, a skiff, that would have the anchor in the boat, and they would row that skiff into the harbor. Guess what that skiff was called? The forerunner. And it would go into the harbor, and it would anchor the anchor into the safe harbor. And then when it was safe enough, it would pull, they would pull the boat into the safe harbor when it was the right time. So that's the one metaphor. And what he's basically saying is this promise that we have in God, this promise that is, has all its yes and amen in Jesus, this promise is our hope, our expectation that Jesus is our forerunner. He's gone into the safe harbor and he's going to make sure that we on the ship get into the safe harbor. That's one metaphor. The other metaphor, though, is this. He talks about that this anchor behind the veil the presence behind the veil. He talks about, again, this high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. We'll talk about Melchizedek next week. But this picture then now is this veil and a high priest. He's given this metaphor of the temple. And this is, listen, you guys probably know this, that like in the, the temple where Jesus would have gone uh, to worship, where the, where the Jews would have gone, he would have taught his disciples on the outside court of that temple. This temple had a place called the holy place that only the priests could go in. And in the holy place was this place called the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was where only the high priest could go in one time a year on Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. And here's what's interesting is that when that priest would go in one time a year, he would make an offering that was meant to cover all the sins of all the people including himself. 
But if that high priest wasn't holy enough, if he hadn't dealt with the sin in his own life, he would actually die. And so what they would do is they would tie a rope to his ankle. They had all kinds of, they had all kinds of bells on his garments. And they had this rope on his ankle. And if they hear the jingling, jingling on the Yom Kippur, they'd know, okay, he's still alive. It's going good so far. But if he heard a clump, boom, and no more jingle, they gently drag him out of the holy place. Oh, better luck next year, you know. Now, now here's the thing. This is where these, over, these, these metaphors overlap. The author is saying this. Jesus has entered in. He was on the ship with us. The ship in the midst of stormy seas. He knows exactly how dangerous it is to be on the ship. He left the ship after he made sure the ship was where it was supposed to be. He left the ship. He came into the safe harbor. He anchored the harbor, which is right in the very presence of God. And guess what? That anchor is there forever because he's there forever. And he guarantees that we're going to be there. So what's, what's important about these two metaphors? Well, this is what's important is that these two metaphors speak to a reality. The reality of our access to God and our expectation from God. Our access to God, quickly. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. We read this a couple weeks ago, right? That you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you know why you can go to God no matter what? No matter how wretched you've been, no matter how much you've doubted, no matter how much you've wrestled, do you know you can go right into the presence of God and say, God, help me. You know why you can do that? Because of Jesus. You know what real prayer is? Real prayer is you recognizing you're helpless. I can't do it, God. God goes, finally, you're praying. So often our prayers are not us about our helplessness, but about our best efforts. So we try to use the best language we can use, copy the people we think are most spiritual, ask for the things, the things that make God will think sound the most holy. And God's going, would you just kind of just admit that you're helpless and come boldly to my throne of grace that you might find grace to help in time of need? Just come in. The anchor is already in. It's past the veil. What happened when Jesus was crucified? What happened to that veil between the holy place and the holy of holies? It tore, how? From top to bottom. An 18-foot curtain tore from top to bottom. A 10-inch thick, 18-foot tall curtain tore from top to bottom. Now, if that was just like the priest wanted to kind of do something, it would have tore from what? the bottom to the top. Who tore it? God did. Don't you get it? When Christ's body was being torn on that cross, God was tearing apart the wall of separation between us and Him so we could go in and just say, I'm helpless. And God can say, I know. That's why I sent my Son. And I'm here to help. That's why I sent the helper. Who's the helper? The Holy Spirit. That's the access we have to God. Listen, seriously, when we sing songs to God, it's not as if we have to kind of make our way to the holy place. Oh, I hope I get there. I hope I get there. I hope I get there. We just enter in. 
Now, the trick is recognizing where you are. (laughs) I'm in the presence of Almighty God. That's what we need to do by faith. I'm in your presence, God. That's our access. This is what he's done. This is what Jesus guarantees. Jesus guarantees our access. The guarantee has nothing to do with us and has everything to do with him. But also, it's our expectation. Listen to this. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 14. He says to his disciples who are thinking, oh no, Jesus is going to go away. What does this mean? He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Have the same faith in, his, in my character as you do in God's character. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. I go to prepare a safe harbor for you. I go to prepare a permanent home for you. And I have anchored you there. That's your expectation. When I die, I expect I'm going to awake seeing Jesus face to face saying to me, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you know why? It's not because I do well. (laughs) I blow it all the time. I expect to hear that because I trust Jesus. I trust that what he did was enough for me. I trust that he is the one who's put the anchor beyond the veil. He's the one who's guaranteed a place for him to be in. I trust him for that. And because I trust him, I trust that that's what I'm going to say. That's what he said I'm going I'm to hear him say. He's going to say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. That's my expectation. Do you know what that does for my life? The more I access God and enjoy him, the more I have an expectation that that's my eternity the less I'm worried about what happens here. The more I'm only wanting to see His kingdom come. I don't mean just waiting to get there. I mean, I want to see what's going to be there happen here. God, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, let happen outside the veil what's already happened in the veil. God, You do what You do best. Let grace abound to this place. Let people know that there's an anchor to a safe harbor if they will just take you at your worth. They'll just trust you. God, do that. And do that at whatever cost necessary. You know what separates Christians from other religious people? It's not that we believe more than they do. Other religious people have a lot more faith often than we do. You know what the difference is? They say, look, what we have is true, And if you don't believe it, we'll kill you or we'll cut you off or we'll do whatever. We say what we have is true, and if you don't believe it, you can kill us. You can kill us. You can cause us to suffer. You you, you can do whatever you need to do to prove to yourself that Jesus is trustworthy. You know why? Because we trust him even if we die. We trust him. Where does that kind of ability come from? It comes from understanding the guarantee that we have in Jesus. That's where it comes from. Only there.